0: Welcome to the Urban Collaborative Podcast. We are here to listen to stories and personal experiences of people in our community, their successes, How they got there, and advice they might share with others who are facing some of the same challenges and opportunities they may have had. Each of our podcast speakers will connect us to the theme of the month that we are looking to explore with you all, our Urban Collaborative members. I'm Ruchika Chopra, host of this series that we call Collabcast, a resource from the Urban Collaborative supporting over 100 districts in 29 states across the country to build equitable and inclusive practices. During the month, we will also have for you, our members, access to a scheduled Zoom meeting around the theme, and additional related resources will also be shared. These topics concern issues that you have told us you are grappling with and want to learn more about. We are continuing our conversation from our fall meeting in Phoenix, Arizona. The theme of the meeting asked us to address the question, how are the children? Asking participants to share their stories of youth empowerment. One of our district members who was supposed to share the story of the work that they are doing in their district around this theme was Stephanie Morgan Harris. Unfortunately, Stephanie was not able to make the meeting and had to cancel at the last minute. We are happy to have another way for us to bring Stephanie's experiences to you through this collab cast so that we are able to listen and learn from her. Stephanie Morgan Harris is an exceptional education leader with a passion for fostering excellence, equity, and positive school culture. With an impressive career spanning diverse roles of principal, academic advisor, English language arts and social studies instructional coach, and a teacher, Stephanie has consistently demonstrated her commitment to student success and empowerment. Stephanie's visionary approach is evident in her collaboration with all stakeholders emphasizing social-emotional, cultural, and academic alignment. Along with growth in students' academic achievement, an increase in student attendance underscores her commitment to student engagement. Stephanie is currently the supervisor of student support services at Kankakee School District 111 in Illinois and is dedicated to professional development through her provision of staff training on MTSS, Panorama, Khan Academy, and CHAMPS. She has created calming spaces for both staff and students, enhancing the learning environment. Stephanie's commitment to restorative justice and social justice education is reflected in her creation and implementation of restorative justice program and space within Kankakee's junior high school. Her collaboration with the Kankakee's state attorney on a school-wide social justice learning lab centered around the case of Emmett Till showcases her dedication to instilling important life lessons in her students. Our conversation today with Stephanie will be framed around four broad questions that we have shared with her, but we really are here to learn and hear about her personal story and how it has led her to how she thinks about her professional life. Welcome, Stephanie. We are thrilled to have you with us. Hi, everyone. I am thrilled to be here as well. This is amazing. It's amazing, right, that we can get to have this conversation when when you weren't able to make the meeting. So again, excited to hear what you were planning to share with us in Arizona, but then also just excited to hear about how you have learned from your own experiences and have brought that learning into your work with students at Kankakee and in all of your roles before that. So let's get started. And to do that let's reflecting on your own journey as an educator if you can can you share some of your story and how it led you to where you are today
1: My story is very very unique however it shows the intersections of all of my identity as a school leader I was I'm also a teen mom I grew up on the west side of Chicago and from there to now I have transversed many different experiences from being a teenage alcoholic to being a member of my church choir. And so it's amazing how all of those different identities and different roles have played into who I am today. And in fact, I'm going to be very transparent and candid in I would uh, venture to say that I'm better for those experiences. I often wonder uh, why people go through what they go through and how they overcome them. I would say that most of everything that I've endured in my life has made me a stronger individual able to face the challenges that I face today. And so to understand how I was a teenage alcoholic or how I was a runaway kid or how I was a teen mom, you have to understand the trauma that preceded those experiences. Experiences. And so, seeing a lot as a young person, as uh, growing up, it wasn't until I would say high school that all of the trauma caught up with me. I was a good girl honor student. Um, I was taking trigonometry in the eighth grade, African American literature in the eighth grade. I was, a, by all means, a gifted and talented student. Went into high school on the gifted track. It wasn't until I got to high school that I realized the impact or the effect of trauma. I didn't know what it was called at that time. I just knew I didn't like school anymore. Mm-hmm. And from me not liking school became behaviors. For me, growing up in a very, very um, conservative household, were unique. My mom was like, well, who is this kid? Like, where did she come from? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I became very angry full of anger. And I didn't have any other way to express it besides doing the things that I did. I, I worked at the library in my neighborhood. I was, uh, you know, I, I did that for four years and nobody would have guessed that I had this anger, this frustration, this fire inside of me. And so there were a lot of different experiences. I can recall a time going to school and, you know, realizing that I was a gifted student, I had disengaged from the learning. Sitting in class, my teacher wouldn't call on me. I would raise my hand. She wouldn't call on me. And again, this is, you know, I'm I took trigonometry. I took algebra one and algebra and geometry and algebra, you know, seventh grade, sixth, seventh grade year um, in elementary school. I was ahead of my time. So going Mm -hmm. to high school and they put you back in algebra one. This is like rudimentary. This is like multiplication facts to me. So I'm answering the questions or I want to answer the question. I have a desire to answer the question, but my teacher wouldn't call on me. It wasn't until then that I realized that she didn't like me. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of kids say teachers don't like them, but this was different, right? I believe Ms. Hoy just had a pure passion and did not like me because it was evident in her actions and her behaviors, And I know a lot of educators don't believe in teacher bullies, but they do exist. Right. And one of the things that she did that really solidified in my mind that uh, I didn't belong in her classroom or that I didn't fit in it to her ideal of a student in her classroom was one day was my birthday. Mm -hmm. And I had a gift. I had a birthday present. Uh, It was the DMX Flesh of My Flesh, Blood of My Blood CD. I know it was a very censored album, but it was... (laughs) My favorite album. It was my birthday present and my best friend had gave it to me right before it was time to go to class. And I was so excited. Um, and I was like, oh, my God. And so I went to put it in my purse. It was still in the cellophane wrapping, put it in my purse, going to class. And I'm like, OK, great. I can go to class and learn what I need to learn for today. do the work. But before I could cross the threshold of the classroom, she was like, give me that CD. And I look at her, I'm like, why? Yeah. Now, Most students don't ask teachers the question of why, but I asked the question of why. And she said, well, it's against the school rules. I said, no, it's not. Show me in the handbook where it's against the school rules. Again, me challenging what she was asking me to do because I didn't think it was fair. Right. And she was like, it's in the school handbook. I said, no, it's not. In the school handbook, it says no electronics. A CD is not electronic. You can't use a CD without a CD player. And she was livid to the point where she felt that I was being disrespectful. Now it's turned into a power struggle. And I wasn't trying to struggle with her. In fact, I was just really trying to question why on this day, my birthday, you're choosing to identify me as being a problem when I wasn't trying to cause any issues. I just literally was trying to go to class and sit down and learn for the day. And so she says, well, you need to go to the office. And me standing by my own conviction and believing truly in my heart of heart that I wasn't wrong, I wasn't going to the office. And I said, no, I'm not going to the office. You're going to have to have the office come to me. I'm not going to the office. I'm here to learn. I want you to teach. That's what I'm going to do. You know, the sass, all the sass and jazz came out. And she was upset. And the principal came to the classroom and he got me. And I knew then when I got to the office that my mom was going to be upset, but I knew that I was right. Now, I, I'm going to fight when I'm right. If I'm right, I'm going to fight all day. Yeah. And I get to the office and my mom is upset and she's like, Stephanie, just give him the CD. I will take care of it when I get there. And part of me was crushed on the inside because I felt that my mom didn't understand what was going on. But the other part of me was like, trust her. Yeah. She's going to make it right. And she did. A lot of things, you know, she fought that battle for me without me having to um, <laughs> get in any further trouble. Yeah. But it was the fact that, you know, realizing that teachers like that existed. And that was an eye-opening experience for me. It was very traumatic for me, an eye-opening experience. And it made me really, truly not want to come to school because I really felt that school wasn't the place that I belonged. I was gifted. I was talented. I understood the content
0: but I didn't feel like I was welcome in that space. So is this, a, is this the, your first memory of when you didn't do things that you were asked to do, which, which weren't, because again, as a child, as a young teenager, I'm sure there were other opportunities when people asked you to do something that you didn't agree with. Is this the first opportunity that you remember standing your ground to the way that you did? Or are there other yeah. opportunities that you...
1: This was the first memory. There were many memories after this one, but this was yeah. one of the first ones. Because oh. um, I felt, and after that, I felt vindicated and being, being able to advocate. That's right. when that advocacy I me, and I felt that I had the voice to be able to speak to certain issues that other people would be scared to speak to that I felt weren't fair. I didn't feel like it was fair for us to go to school and the heat wasn't working. Why are we in school and the heat is not working today? And so I would speak to those issues. And I got a little bit of a
0: reputation of being trouble. What after that particular incident, but then after all these other places, other times that you were standing up for some of the things that you you thought were just not right what did it lead to did you were you able to stay engaged with school like how did that impact your academic life and what happened with you in high school well academically I began to
1: I missed a lot of school I'm not gonna lie I missed at least 140 school days my sophomore and junior year um my GPA took a major hit I don't even know how I really truly graduated outside of like they was tired of seeing me at school, and they really wanted to get rid of me. Uh, <laughs> my GPA was as low as like a one point six seven, I believe. And I remember my sophomore, my junior year, applying on the Common App for universities with my with my brother. My brother was a year older than me, and so he was applying for schools, and so I began to apply for schools with them. And I wasn't thinking much about school at that time. I was just doing it because he was doing. It. I was just following his footsteps. Mm-hmm. But I was also, you know, drinking regularly, like drinking alcohol every day. And I wasn't really into school. It just wasn't something that I wanted to do. I didn't really want to be there. And I remember, I would say my senior year when I was pregnant, I had uh, the school, me and my principal had a conversation. We were sitting in the office and I had gotten to the point where I was, you know, too sick and too big to be at school. And he said, you know, it's time for you to possibly consider staying at home for school. And I said, OK. And he said, you know, at this point, you know, really you are not going to be anything but a welfare case. So you might as well just stay at home. That really struck a chord with me yes. because being the advocate that I am, it was like he really thought that low of me. Um, he didn't feel as though I was worthy of an education. So just go home, have your baby and get on welfare is essentially what I heard from that message. That he didn't see you, that he didn't see who you were. He did not. He didn't see, he didn't see, he didn't even know me. Right. He didn't know me. He didn't know that I was a gifted student before I became a student in his school. He didn't know the things that I was passionate about. He just saw a young girl that made a choice to have a baby and uh, was troubled and felt that I wasn't deserving of an education. And chose the
0: outcome that he thought connected with that. Exactly. Mm.
1: Exactly. And that was very powerful to me because I internalized those words. Now I could have chose to do two things with those words. I could have chose those words and used them to be stuck and follow the path that he had predestined for me. Mm. Or I could have chose those or I could take those words and use them as an opportunity to do something different with my life. Mm. Um, I remember having a conversation with my counselor after meeting with him and my counselor was like, well, you can go to JUCO and you know you can take these classes at the junior colleges and and i was like no mm-hmm. i have a child that i'm getting ready to have i need to be able to provide for my child i need to be able to ensure that um, i have the means to afford the lifestyle that he needs and i remember applying to all of the colleges all of the universities mm-hmm. across the state of illinois and i remember keep getting those rejection letters wow. but i didn't let those rejection letters stop me from continuing to apply mm-hmm. And I remember in February of 2000, getting the acceptance letter, the one out of dozens
0: yeah.
1: of failure or rejection letters, the one to Alabama State University. Uh-huh. And oh my God, it was a life-changing experience. My mom was like, how are you going to do this? But I was like, mom, I gotta do this. And my mom was one of those um, mothers that let you learn your life lessons on your own. Mm. So she said, this is what you want to do. If you're going to be a mom, you're going to be a mom. If you're going to go to school, you're going to go to school. So I did all of the work to prepare myself for school, to save money. I worked three jobs to save money, to go to school. I did a lot of things to prepare myself to get what I needed to get to get to school. And when I got to school, my mom said to me, Stephanie, I've seen you work hard. Mm -hmm. I will take your son while you go to school. And that was a, a jaw-dropping experience. Because at that point, my mom was like, I got your back. Because mm-hmm. I felt like I was on the loan for a majority of, like for the nine months, I was on my own. But my mom in that moment was like, I have your back. I got you. Go and do what you need to do at school. And in fact, it wasn't until I got to college
0: right.
1: at Alabama State University that I realized that I was smart. Huh. I spent four years of high school realizing that I was a failure or thinking that I was a failure or thinking that I wasn't smart. And then in my first semester at Alabama State, I had a 3.8 GPA. Whoa. I ended up graduating Alabama State in three years in, uh, with cum laude, mm-hmm. with honors, as the president of the Kappa Delta Pi Honor Society, the vice president of the State Alabama Education Association, and the national delegate for the state of Alabama to the National Education Association. Wow. So I end up being a very impactful and influential student but I had to be in the right place, in the right space, surrounded by people that made me feel as though I belong.
0: Right. So Stephanie, those four years just seemed to be years in your life that, like you said, that you felt this sense of failure, right? And you you started by talking about trauma that predated that time. And it almost like it came to head during those four years. What was it in that four years, as well as when you start Alabama State and that you continue with that, where was the strength that you were mastering, right? Where were you bringing all that strength from? And who were the people or events that might have helped you get to that point? Great question.
1: There were a lot of champions in my life that really helped to steer me and redirect me and focus me in life. The words that my principal said to me, Mm angered me enough mm. to put a fire in me to say, I am not that person. Right. I remember the words of, of my elementary teachers, mm. Lucille Jackson. Uh. I never forget her. She was second grade and she had this mindset of excellence mm. that the lineage, she would say this one thing that was profound to me and it stuck, it sticks with me to this day. She said, you are sitting in the seat of, someone who has fought, bled, and died for you to sit in and possess. Mm. And she was referencing how uh, slaves and sharecroppers worked hard mm. for us to have the same rights that for to have the rights for education now. Right, And it was my obligation and my duty Mm. to make them proud. Mm. I had no choice to fail in life. I had to be excellent in life because I didn't have any other option because it was paid for Mm. with the blood and sweat of my ancestors. And so those words stuck with me all through high school. But when I look at my teachers, none of my teachers look like me. So they weren't able to reinforce those words Mm. that this seat that I'm sitting in it was paid for right. through toil and stress and, and 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 strain and blood and tears. That it came, it was paid for with a cost um, of life. Mm-hmm. And I had the right. I didn't have the right to fail in life. I didn't have that right. I didn't have that privilege. I had to be excellent. I had to be successful. So those words stayed with me. They were rooted in my soul mm-hmm. because she planted them there.
0: They were. It was rooted. But you have words from your second grade teacher who kept you fighting, kept you moving, kept on uh, trying to find the best in who you were and are, trying to get those outcomes that that led you to where you are. And then you have um, the words of the principal, the words of the teacher in the high school that have also stayed with you. All those things together built that energy in you to continue to keep going, and to be able to get you to the place that you are at right now. You talked about your mother, and you talked about how she championed some of the champion some of who you are, right, and also kind of supported you, but didn't just ask you to give you just whatever it is that you wanted, right? When you struggled, she said, you have to work through it and bring yourself to the point where then I can support you in the way that will keep moving you forward. Can you tell a little bit about how her presence in your life impacted who you are right now and how you were able to go through all of these traumatic and other experiences? Again, there's there's a lot of other trauma that you've experienced. Can you speak to how that influenced you and brought you to where yes. you are?
1: Yes, my mom is a force. Hmm. My mom grew up in the Lawndale neighborhood during the Black Panther movement. Mm-hmm. And out of all of her siblings, there were five of them, she was the only one to go to college and graduate. Mm-hmm. And not only that, she was the first one to go to school to get her master's. So my mm-hmm. mom worked for the state of Illinois and she was a social worker. And so she understood some of the behaviors that I was exhibiting from, you know, from one lens. But she just couldn't believe it was her child doing some of the things right. that I was doing. But she was a force to be reckoned with. I remember mm-hmm. trying out for the wrestling team. Mm-hmm. And 20 years ago, girls weren't on the wrestling team. That wasn't something that girls did. Girls didn't mm-hmm. wrestle. That was a boy sport. And it wasn't for girls. And I told my mom, I said, I want to be on the wrestling team. And they're not letting me wrestle. And I remember her going to the board meeting and saying, is her Title nine right? to be on a wrestling team unless you have a girl's wrestling team. And I remember her fighting with the board of education for me to be on a wrestling team. And Mm. that was like, it was to see that fight in her, Mm. to see that in her, to know that she, she was standing by me in that moment uh, to do that. She was just a wonderful person. Now, when you were wrong, you were wrong. And she was right. going to let you feel the consequences of your wrong actions. So if I when I ran away from home, she didn't have a problem in the world with locking the door, calling the police and leaving me outside in the cold. Huh. <laughs> but she knew that I would have to come home eventually. And she knew that when I came home, I had to come home right. I couldn't just come home any kind of way.
0: Huh.
1: And I remember going to my, uh, to my godmother's house, which is in a whole other suburb. And uh, I told my godmother, I said, I can't go home. My mom won't let me home. She said, she's just waiting on you to come home and apologize. Now, when you come home and you do right, she'll let you in the door. But if you come in acting crazy, you know, you're going to be sitting on the front porch. And she was right. My mom was very firm about her expectations. Uh very firm about her expectations. And because of that, she knew certain things that I couldn't do. She was like, you can't go to this school and you can't do these things. And that's why she was the way that because she knew my personality. She knew who her child was and she knew I was a a ball of fire. Uh She just knew who I was, but she also knew that I was destined for greatness. She recently Uh told me, she said, you remember when you were a kid, you wanted to be a lawyer. She said, Mm -hmm. look at you now. She Mm -hmm. said, you are such a fierce advocate. You are Mm -hmm. so amazing. You're an administrator and you do such wonderful things for children. And, you know, she doesn't tell me that she's proud of me often. She tries Mm -hmm. you know, to keep me humble. But uh, that was a moment that made me know that she was proud of me.
0: It was a moment of success in your life, of being able to to hear your mother say that. Because you know that she comes from a place of... Of knowing you and being able to celebrate who you are and also celebrate the successes, knowing all the other parts of your life, all the trauma.
1: And that's what kids want. Kids want to be validated um, by the the, the positive adults in their life or the adults in their life period. They want to be validated. They want to feel seen. They want to feel acknowledged. They want to feel known to the people that matter
0: to them. So Stephanie, that's a perfect segue. I I was wondering about like how and what are some of the ways that you have guided the educators that you work with because you've had different roles over the time that you've been in education. What have you done to help guide those educators to do some of the challenging work and of creating a sense of belonging for all the children that they work with? How do you do that? And how do you get uh, get the educators that you work with to understand how to help create that? Great question.
1: So the first thing is I walk in the feet or the shoes of the children. Hmm. And what that means is we speak about empathy and we speak about compassion, but oftentimes you have to, in order to understand the gravity of what our children are facing or coming to school with, you have to walk in their shoes, right. you know, go in their neighborhoods, go to their grocery stores, go to um, their events and just feel it, take it all in. Right. And then when you go into the classroom, sit in this seat as though you are that student. You are the student of a single parent. You are the student of a parent who doesn't have a high school education. You're the student of a parent who is in an abusive relationship or is addicted to drugs. And so as that student, I'm sitting in this classroom in this seat and I'm internalizing this information. If I have a question, is it a psychologically safe space for me to ask that question? Right. Is it a space for me where I feel comfortable going to my teachers and saying, hey, I don't have food at home? Is it a space safe for me to say, you know, our water is turned off. Can you wash my clothes? Mm -hmm. Um, So helping educators to feel what kids feel, because that takes a lot of courage for a kid to be able to trust you with that information. The other piece with that is I help education understand if a kid trusts you with that information, not to violate their trust, because trust is fragile like glass. Once you break it, you can't put it back together again. So when you have violated a child's trust and they understand and they have this these spidey senses, they know when things are not right. They understand when they can trust somebody versus who they can't trust. If they input their trust, if they give you their trust. To help them with washing their clothes or letting them know that they have some food insecurity at home or that they're struggling with housing. If they trust you with that, do them the service of connecting them with the resource or do them the customer service or helping them with that. And so understanding that, being in those shoes, having had those opportunities where when I was a teen mom, I had to go stand in the public aid line. Right. I went to stand in the WIC line. And even though I was in um, college and I was going to school and I was all of these things and I stand in those lines and people look at you as though you are undeserving
0: yeah.
1: of respect. Every person, regardless of their academic or educational background or their socioeconomic background, deserves respect. Yeah.
0: So I'm hearing you say, to be able to build that trust, to be able to understand the issues that the students are walking in, to be able to know the community resources that are there in your community so that you can help connect the students with, with that. Some of the things that I'm hearing you say are ways that you've brought your te- the educators that you work with into the same space as you to be able to support the students who are facing the kind of trauma that some of our students do. Exactly. And even the therapeutic
1: sources. In communities of color, sometimes therapeutic services are viewed um, in a negative light. And so introducing therapy as a way of wellness and not as a way of saying that there is something mentally wrong with them, right? And so, having uh, introducing them in a in a different way. So I invite right. our therapeutic sources, resources. When I have parent meetings and we're sitting at the parent meeting, and I introduce them at that parent meeting and say, "Hey, this is Dexter, and he's here to, you know support this conversation with resources, additional resources for the family so that we can move forward and support the the entire family because we are one. Um, one team. I bring them in on that regard because I want the families to understand I respect you as humans. And right. I think oftentimes when they encounter the school, we lose the humanity of our roles as educators. And we have to look at them with humanity um, and dignity and respect, understand that they're, they're doing the best that they can. They're sending us the best that they have to offer. And out of their pool of resources, out of their tools that they have in their toolbox, they're doing the best that they can. And it's our job to equip them with more, to give them those tools, those resources, because all the community agencies, they come to the schools and they come to the districts and they tell us, oh, I have this product, I have this resource, I have this. They don't know how to connect with the families, and that's our job to be that bridge, to be that conduit, to help mm-hmm. to navigate those conversations, and to give those parents those resources, and let them know it's okay um, that we are a safe place. But that mindset, because yeah. like even with me when I was in school, that mindset of hearing the teachers gossip about me in the in the teachers' lounge, mm-hmm. hearing the principal be condescending of me. That mindset, I wasn't the only student that experienced that. There are many students that experienced that. And so a lot of parents have school trauma that has to be healed. Um, And the only way that can be healed is if we do things differently. We can't do things the same way we
0: did things 50 years ago. No. And I hear you saying that to be able to do all of that, we as educators need to be able to listen. Because uh, yes. that's the only way that we can, we can really be able to unearth some of those things that families may be telling us, but we are not ready to listen. So, And having those connections, and then again, going back to that conversation of trust that you started us with, to be able to do that, to be able to develop that, you need to be able to listen and then follow through, like you said earlier, too, to be able to kind of develop that level of trust with the families, which would obviously then also connect with the trust that you develop with the student.
1: Yes, you have to get curious and, you know, get curious about what's going on in a genuine fashion. When I'm speaking to families, or I'm speaking to students, I leave with this question, tell me more. Mm. Help me to understand. Tell me more and help me to understand are my two questions. I want to understand. Please explain to me what that feels like. I'm so sorry that you're going through that. How did that make you feel? How can I help you? And that's that active listening and engagement and truly taking the time to have that conversation, not just with uh, parents, but with kids, uh, with students, really getting into um, those emotions behind that. And that's where that trust comes into play, because you have to know. If it's not life threatening and you and I don't tell kids if you're going to endanger your life, yes, I have to make sure that I do as part of what I have to do as as an administrator, I have to make sure that you are safe, you know, from all hurt and harm. But when it comes down to connecting you to resources, it's safe with me. I'm not going to gossip about it. I'm not going to share it with anybody that I don't feel is going to be able to help and to support you. And it's it's been a transformative process. Um, especially with our children and our young people um, and our families. I've helped families get jobs. I've helped families get housing. I've helped uh, children get jobs. I'm helping them to get into the military and into college. It's just amazing to see how the work goes from being, you know, how it flourishes and how they thrive.
0: I can imagine a a teacher listening to us right now might be thinking, I need to be able to be working towards allowing the students to be able to understand the curriculum and to be able to learn the content that I that is being presented in front of them and in front of me. So I need to be able to do that. Some of the things that you're talking about are things that they may not be seeing as a part of what they need to do. I can see that as a barrier in doing some of the works that you are presenting to your educators to do I can see that mindset being part of that what are some of the barriers that you have faced when working with educators in being able to do some of the things that that you're suggesting are important and completely I don't think that your time ah time time where do we get the
1: time time the time the time and so I I always tell uh, teachers one thing your time can be either intentional Or it could be unintentional, right? When you're taking the intentional time to have your morning circles, to have those conversations, to get to know the kids, because that morning circle in the morning is your temperature check, right? Mm -hmm. That helps you to understand, did Johnny eat breakfast this morning? Did Susie sleep all night? That's your temperature check to get a gauge for what's going on with that child individually, right? So you need to take that time on the front end because you have to make sure You got a Maslow before you bloom. You have to meet their fundamental needs, their their basic needs. Right. And so you can have that conversation on the front end or you can have the unintentional time where you're dealing with disruptive behavior, where they're throwing chairs and they're throwing books and they're not wanting to learn. They're being defiant. That comes from not checking in and doing the basic needs check in that group circle. It all depends on how you wanna use your time. You can take 15 minutes of your morning and take time to have that circle, or you can end up destroying your whole afternoon with disruptive chaotic behavior when a student is not feeling supported in class. All depends on what you choose to do with your time.
0: I love that. I love that. Think about it as intentional time think about how you decide to to do with your time and be intentional about it. Yeah. And
1: and and I and I do things like during their PE time or during yeah. recess, I go and I play with them. Huh. I play at recess with them. I go play basketball with them in the gym. So I do a lot of things to support them with their time. So it's it's all in what you want to use your time for. I have lunch with them. So I have girls that they, you know, they feel so special. It's like tea time. They come and they have lunch with me and we eat lunch and they tell me all of everything that's going on. And it doesn't cost me anything to give my time to give them that attention. And you have to think about it like this. Who's giving them that attention at home? Mm -hmm. If mom is working two or three jobs, dad is working two or three jobs, who's giving that attention at home?
0: Yeah.
1: So it takes nothing for me to give my time. To, to just hear what's on their heart or what's on their mind and to help them process those problems and those
0: challenges. And to build that trust, which leads mm-hmm. to building that trust. That is so important mm-hmm. for us when we ask students to, to participate in the content that we know that we have to teach. And that conversation builds content,
1: brings context to the content. Yeah, that's because right. Because now you understand how to teach, What needs what needs to be taught because you have a frame of reference and you can make a connection Uh, you can ask questions differently because you understand your students differently so it gives context to the content when you build those relationships and you have those in depth conversations.
0: Thank you, Stephanie. And I know that we're going to continue this conversation with you in a few weeks. And listeners, we'll be talking about that in just a few minutes. But before we end this conversation, you shared some really, really simple, but extremely, uh, but but ways that, that will have big impact on, on the way that teachers do think about making those connections and building that trust with some of the students that they work with. Is there a, is there, another piece of just one piece of general advice that you would want to leave, leave our listeners with that you have thought that you'd want to share with educators? Uh, yes. To help students
1: heal, they have to look back and they have to feel safe to look back so they can move forward. And so when you partner with them in looking back, embrace your humanity and who you are, be comfortable in who you are, And help the children understand that you've had challenges, they've had challenges, and that we're going to be brave together as we move forward together. And that's the number one nugget that I I share to help students become unstuck. I'm very transparent. I let them know that I am a human. I've fallen many times. But every time I've fallen, I've always gotten back up. And as long as you get back up, that's half the battle. That's half the battle
0: to be brave, to get up, and to to do it together with the students. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie, for taking the time to share. Your fierceness, your passion, and your ability to do what's right will connect with many of our listeners. We will be sharing resources and ways to connect with Stephanie in our communication to our members following this podcast. We are fortunate that Stephanie, and I mentioned this earlier a little while before, Stephanie is able to engage with us and talk a little bit more about those specific practices that she spoke to and shared with us today in our Zoom meeting, our collab talk for this month on October 30th. She will lead a conversation around how to address the unique challenges in the personal and academic lives of children who have experienced trauma to address these challenges and provide them with the support they need. Stephanie proposes a professional development program titled That One Kid. This program aims to equip educators and school staff with strategies to build resilience in children who have experienced trauma by focusing on actively listening, which she spoke a little bit about today, creating cultures of acceptance, also something she shared, and adopting inclusive and restorative practices. The aim is to foster a safe and supportive environment for these children to thrive and for them to be brave to face their lives. She will share how Kankaki is looking at these practices and policies around children who face these challenges. To register for this and other upcoming Urban Collaborative events and resources, go to our Instagram page, Urban Collaborative ASU, and click the link in the bio. We look forward to hearing from you, all our listeners, on how Stephanie's experiences connected with you. Once again, Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing your time and being transparent and open about your own personal experiences and how you bring that into the work that you do every day and build those places of trust and belonging for the students that you work with over the years. We really, really, really do appreciate your time. Thank you. Before closing our collab cast for today, we want to again thank Keith Jones of Crip Hop for providing the music. His information will also be shared with you. Thank you.